2 Corinthians, right? 2 Corinthians 3.17, that's the whole ball game. Where the Spirit of the Lord, right? Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And here there is Liberty College, but Liberty University, but it is so true. You said that you've never asked God for forgiveness. Do you, do you regret making that remark? No, I have great relationship with God. I have great relationship with uh, the evangelicals. In fact, nationwide, I'm, I'm up by a lot. I'm leading everybody. But I like to be good. I don't like to have to ask for forgiveness. I, I even can say that in many aspects, uh, the President Trump has the opportunity to become a modern King David. Hello and welcome to Trumpcast. I'm Virginia Heffernan. I don't know if you all saw Stephen Colbert on CNN in the clip talking about his faith with Anderson Cooper. And Cooper was fighting and yielding to tears. It's a lovely moment that brought to mind, or my mind anyway, Andrew Yang's interaction with a grieving mother in Iowa earlier this month. Both times you see two adults in some kind of psychic and emotional sink sharing their suffering and thus lifting it, seeing its fundamental humanness, and maybe even redeeming it along spiritual lines. It seems surprising that the spectacle of adults, and especially men, and Yang Cooper and Colbert are men in power, men crying together, showing somatic empathy for one another. You can see it in their bodies. That seems to be what we need right now. And perhaps it is. I mean, we need to be reminded of our shared humanity, our fragility, our mortality, our short time on Earth, and the fact that we all confront certain problems that, believe it or not, have nothing to do with impeachment or even owning the libs. I'm talking about heartbreak, aging, financial losses, failing health, children children who are hurt or who hurt us. It's really hard to feel these things with leaders whose faces register only arrogance and anger. And I'd even add that faces like Trump, and I hope I'm not going too far with this, but faces that are distorted with cosmetics made matte with that orange makeup are hard even to perceive as expressive in the usual way. I mean, Trump doesn't laugh or cry. He doesn't model natural human reactions. And that makes it harder for us to embrace these things in ourselves, our own humanness. And at worst, we end up defensively mirroring his expressions of contempt, spite, and fury. What's more, in an environment like our own that's become a tinderbox with mass shootings and caged kids and hot tempers, it is way too risky even to touch on the human condition at its simplest, most beautiful, most sorrowful, and most shared. So to see Colbert and Cooper and Yang take this risk, which in turn allows us to take emotional risks and experience our humanity in full, is a great public service. And I urge everyone who, like me, hasn't been able to cry in a long time to watch those videos. But empathy among men, fellowship, is not enough. Unless it impels these men, these leaders, to lead more humane lives, these moments can be nothing but feel-good set pieces. Or worse, they can leave the unequipped vulnerable to poisonous and dangerous dogma and practices. Such, it seems, is the case with the so-called family, a loose, stealth, and extensive religious network with political ties everywhere, And that, as my guest Jeff Charlotte has tirelessly shown in his work, 
The family has managed for decades to cross up church and state in this country and ally itself with some of the most brutal leaders on earth. All in the name of, yes, Jesus. The family preys on young men. It once tried to prey on Jeff when he moved in with a bunch of, quote, new men being recruited for service to the leaders of the family. First, this group allows young men to have their suffering and feel their sins forgiven. And then it gets them to carry water for a truly perverted organization that makes a fetish of power and might and calls it Jesus. How does the family pull off that neat trick? And how does Donald Trump fit in? The Chilling Story of the Family is on Netflix right now, directed by Jesse Moss and based on the book by my guest, Jeff Charlotte. Jeff, welcome to Trumpcast. Hi, Virginia. Thanks for having me. So I read your book, The Family, and I I don't want to call it your life's work. You've done so much else, but this has been a, a decade plus in the making. The Family has now become a new documentary on Netflix that is absolutely riveting. I gulped it down. Thanks. Thanks. Yes, I've been working on this for a long time. And, uh, you know, I think I first got involved really right after right after 9-11 when the brother of an old friend came to New York and his family was, his actual family was worried that he had joined a cult and they wanted me to, see, you know, meet with this fellow and see what he was up to. And he had come, this is, you know, this is really in the days after 9-11. He says, I've come to, to survey the ruins of secularism. And I remember that was such a strange phrase. Um, and he said, you know, secularism is done. It's, to, to his mind, the only thing left was a religious fight, and he was on the side of a very unusual understanding of Jesus. And invited me to come to a group house for young men who were gathered around this uh, and this greater political project and see it for myself. And I did, and I found myself reporting on it uh, for years and years. And now here we are in 2019, and uh, I guess I'm still on the beat. I think that, you know, when we, as we hope to do on this show, take the measure, sound the depths of the cultural and political change of now, a lot of times there's either 2008 with the financial crisis or 2001 with 9-11 that we look to as a touchstone where lots of people personally change their lives. Sometimes they became pro-war became neoliberals or neocons. I had friends who pronouncedly moved to the right. Sometimes they went to work for the government, having been, you know, not government people. And I think we we sometimes fail to take into account so many changes that happened to people personally, but also professionally. Robert Mueller turned the FBI into a counterintelligence organization. So many seismic shifts politically. And then, as you say, personally for figures like your friend, you call him Luke in the documentary. Were you still thinking that you might save him from this thing, take him out of whatever cult he was in? Or did he manage to persuade you that there was something interesting about surveying the ruins of uh, secularization? Well, I wasn't about saving anybody. I'm a journalist. We can't save anybody. Um, uh, we can only tell stories. And at the time, I was well. His friend, a... but his mother came to you saying, "Save him, right?" Uh, or like, yeah, sister. Yeah, sister. I had known this figure, uh, Luke, for um, we call him Luke, and it's it's one of the very few names I change. And and because uh, I wanted to protect his identity, because as you'll see in the series, the family mm-hmm. ends up turning against him, the organization, um, and I think he, he he paid a price for that. And. Um, you know, I had always known him as a very angry young guy. Um, hmm. I had dated his sister, and I'm Jewish, and he liked to make anti-Semitic jokes. He was that kind of guy. And um, when I met him, 
after 9-11, he, he apologized for that. He was really, in so many ways, a much improved person at the same time. You know, and you see this, we, we sort of dramatize this in the show. He says, you know, I, I found this other way, this other understanding of Jesus. And we just, as a group of guys, and we work with politicians, and we are, you know, he had this idea of building the kingdom of God on earth. And it was transformative for him. That 9-11, mm-hmm. as you say, that transformative moment was this moment where he said, you know, he felt like he had to choose a side. I think it's a really good way of thinking about that. Because I do also think, and part of the story we're trying to tell, I mean, I I published these books in 2008, 2010, Mm -hmm. and we went into the series of, okay, what's happened since then? What's happening in uh, the Trumpocene, as I I like to call it, the age of Trump? And I think it's another transformative moment. It certainly is for the Christian right writ large and Mm -hmm. for this organization right at the heart of it, which is embracing a model of power that they were comfortable with overseas for a long time. And now that kind of authoritarianism has come home and it turns out they're just fine with it. So that is, you know, should be the crux of our conversation today. But I still want to stay with the beginning of the documentary where you represented by an actor. So so David Risdell uh, plays you in it. And, and doing recreations is always, a, is always sort of an interesting risk, but I thought it worked very well here. Kind of beautiful, muted performances by these actors playing you, playing the other men at, uh, is it Ivan Wald? Ivan Wald, yeah. Ivanwald. So the kind of strangely glamorous place that you went to, sort of like the greatest fraternity in Hogwarts or something beautiful building in the world. Tell us about that, because the moment that you, not to spoil anything, but get your head mashed into the mud, they sort of force you to get to a bottom, like a physical bottom, like humiliate you, haze you so that hopefully you'll be reborn in Jesus. That is, it's pretty surprising to imagine you, a skeptical journalist, getting all the way to the point where you might be driven to your knees like that. So tell us that path a little bit. Yeah, the Ivanwald, the emphasis was on saying to very privileged people, whether they were young men or the, the leading political figures that were a part of it, you're nothing. You're absolutely nothing. You're just a tool for God. And if, if you're hearing that and saying, oh, that sounds like great humility, think about what it means when, you, when a U.S. senator proclaims that I'm just a tool for God. And these decisions mm. I make about war and peace, about budget and what gets cut and, uh, and, and who gets uh, detained, um, it's not me. I'm just doing what Jesus wants. It's a w- profound way of abdicating uh, responsibility. And at Ivanwald, this group house, they physicalized it in the sense of a kind of regime. There were certain scripture verses you had to memorize. And if you didn't, you had to sleep in the basement. And then that scene mm. that you referenced was called The Fumble. And actually, since the series has come out, I'm hearing from so many former members, people left behind. I was like, oh, yeah, I went through mm. that too. And and myself and another new man, um, this was very gender segregated housing. We're, we're told that we had to we had to take a test of our manhood, and we thought we were just going to be arm wrestling. All right, that's what you want us to do. And we start arm wrestling, and then the whole group of guys jumped on us and and just started beating us. And and I didn't know what it was. And because you know because I was there as a Jew, I mean I went there under my own name and everything else. But I knew that I was a suspect figure to them. I thought, oh, this is it. They've just decided against me. And so because I didn't know what was going on, I thought I'm in trouble. And I just started lashing out and hitting as hard as I could. Um, hmm. And that turned out to be just the right 
thing to have done. They were pleased. They should that I I, I had passed the test of manhood, um, mm-hmm. and you know I couldn't breathe. You mean if you had fully like, submitted, then you might not have passed. I I would have been marked as someone who was maybe less interesting, less less useful for development. At the same time that they're saying you're nothing and so on, they're also embracing this tradition of muscular Christianity. We would have political figures come in, and you see this in the series. One guy says, you know, Jesus wasn't a sissy. Uh, If Jesus was alive today, this was actually said, if Jesus was alive today, he'd be a Navy SEAL. He'd be a football player. You know, and it's funny. Yes. Until you think, and it is funny, but until you think of the implications of that, it's an embrace of a warlike Christ, completely at odds with what, with what most know from the Gospels. Wow. So the post-9-11 version that you were exposed to sounds a little like it's a reaction to the concept of jihad. And I saw among people who embraced the idea that there was a um, clash of civilizations a kind of reaction formation. So if religion is conceived of as expressed best in holy war, in violent holy war, but certainly in flexing of power, then Christianity might need to refashion itself to fight that clash of civilizations. Is that sort of where Luke was leading? Yeah, I think, you know, when you make that comparison, what's really interesting, and, and this this reference might be too too obscure, but there's a, a really good George Clooney movie called Syriana, and it's uh, oh, yeah. roughly based on, uh, it's a fictionalized account of uh, the CIA agent Bob Bear, who's written a number of books. And there's a scene in that film about the recruitment of these young jihadists that felt so familiar to me because it doesn't lead with ideology. It's a group of young men playing soccer and, a, and an older guy comes along and he starts talking to them and he really listens to them. And it's, it's, it's kind of intimate and wonderful. It's a space for, for especially men who aren't comfortable with intimacy to talk. And he starts talking to them about sexuality, which for these mm-hmm. guys is a really uneasy topic. And they discover that they can talk about this. That is just step by step. Um, the process of, of development, the experience at Ivanwald. And then you go from that to an ideological commitment so extreme. And the, the family's version of that jihad is Doug Coe, who is the longtime leader, died in 2017, but was for decades the leader of this organization, was sometimes known as the first brother because he was thought to be closer mm-hmm. to God than anyone else. He would often say, like, here's a way to understand Christ. He says, uh, he says, look at the strength of Hitler, Lenin, Mao. So now he's not a Nazi. He's certainly not a communist. What he admires there is the bottom line of absolute strength, absolute commitment. I sat in on a session where he was counseling Congressman Todd Teehart about studying Hitler, Lenin, Mao. There's a sermon that we show in the series in which he says, look at Mao and the Red Guard. The Red Guard, they would have one of their members bring in his mother and father and be a table, like a butcher table, and they, they would... This is Coe's sermon. This is a sermon he is preaching. They would lay the mother out on the table, and the young man would be asked to chop her head off with an axe. And if you're sitting there and say, this is the most horrible thing I've ever heard, Coe hears it differently. He says, that's a covenant. That's what Jesus said. He says, you've got to put me before mother, father, brother, sister. That is scriptural. I don't think Jesus meant it quite like that. And that is that kind of, you start with this, soft cell evangelism, and then you bring into this space of total fanaticism 
such that even now, family defenders, you know, they're, they're responding to the series. They're saying, oh, when he talks about Hitler uh, and, and, and Mao, he's not saying we should be Nazis or communists. And I'm like, no, he says, he's just saying we should have that same level of uh, uh, loyalty. And mm-hmm. I say, that's exactly the problem. Right, the loyalty, right, that you can't really have one without the other. There's so much discussion now of how to raise boys. And I will say that young men, at least my son and his friends, do seem to need to be told that they're strong. Ben Shapiro has a big hold on, I've been talking to other parents about this, it's a big hold on lots of young men right now because he seems like an antidote, or he creates the opposition, that there are these feminizing forces around. And if you're 13, 14, probably terrified of sexuality, terrified of what you perceive as your obligations in the world. And well, as my son says, there are lots of opportunities to see yourself as a bad person if you're a, you know, a white man. And then all of a sudden, you're a good person, and you're really a better person than everyone else, and you're a big winner. But what's weird is then you have to, the second step, once you said, well, I'm not going to embrace this Jesus or women or feminism or some weak possibility that makes me hate myself, but is the next step is that you have to subjugate yourself to someone else. It doesn't exactly seem like a kind of robust, you know, where, where virility and virtue have the same origin and where you're committed to service. Instead, it's sort of this ego flattering, but ultimately highly deferential to, to hierarchy. It's, it's a fascinating paradox. It's the machismo of, of hierarchy. And I think that's actually what allowed me to sort of live with this group and spend time with them over the years and, and not quite be drawn into what is really a powerful gravitational pull is, on the one hand, I was not raised to sort of identify my sense of strength as with that kind of ability to really to bully. That's not my idea of strength. And mm-hmm. on the other hand, I don't want to take orders. That's true. I don't want to take yeah. orders. So many of these young guys do. They want Jesus to be a general. <laughs> you know, and 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 it's yeah. it, and so they they need to rewrite scripture for that. And that's why they embrace this sort of this phrase of Jesus plus nothing, which means no history. Uh, no questions, no theology, none of the rest of the Bible. They threw the rest of it out. Um, and they even throw out the parts of Jesus that contradict what they might say. They just say, ours is not to reason why, ours is to do and die. I remember at one point, and you see in the series, I asked one of the brothers, I said, what about Psalm 137, um, which is a difficult passage of Scripture, and it ends thinking about sort of uh, uh, the vengeance that, that God might take on behalf of the Jews. He says, happy shall he be who taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. That is to say, happy shall be the servant of God who kills the children of the oppressor, right? Well, that's, there's a long theological debate. You know, you've got Jesus plus nothing. My brother at Ivanwall just sort of says, I don't know what that means, but doesn't matter. I just obey. And they take that all the way up to the top, to their biggest event of the year, the National Prayer Breakfast held in Washington every year, where they distribute, you know, you go, it's pretty banal if you watch it on C-SPAN. But I was just thinking um, uh, of one member, uh, a member of parliament in Uganda named David Bahadi, who introduced something called Kill Mm -hmm. the Gays Bill. And he explained to me Mm -hmm. that he learned that he needed to pursue legislatively genocide against homosexuality um, at the National Prayer Breakfast, he said what was revelatory to him was when he was given a, a document that explaining to him that the number one sin 
was not murder or, or any other horrific act. The number one sin was disobedience. All you need to do is obey. Asking questions is a form of disobedience. And that led him to really horrible ends. In spite of the Kill the Gays bill in, in Uganda, we should say, the family did not come out on one side or the other of the Defense of Marriage Act or other American um, anti-gay movements. But they sort of hang back on the subject of family values also. The two things we identify with evangelicals, the moral prudishness around true love weights. I'm trying to go back in time a little bit, but, you know, virginity cults and anti-abortion and anti-birth control and anti-divorce certainly anti-premarital and extramarital sex, all that family value stuff that we think of as a kind of Mike Pence thing is soft-pedaled, to say the least, in the family. And those two things, by lowering those two barriers to entry, by letting in and sustaining relationships with just these florid adulterers and making a fetish of King David, not for anything but the fact that he slept with Bathsheba and killed her husband, not for That's the you good know, David part, and as Goliath. As they're concerned, kind of yeah. That's the good part. Exactly. So if you as a young man... Uh, my mother, my mother you, was raised in a, in a Pentecostal tradition, so I'm, 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 a, I'm a half Jew. My father is Jewish. My mother was Christian. Yeah. Right. Maybe I'm over-identifying with you, but, but the absence of that kind of fundamentalism and liberal tr- literal truth of the Bible that you may have come into contact with the Pentecostalists and the no smarmy family values that we were getting secondhand from evangelicals, maybe that also lowered your immune system. Well, it's interesting because I think about this a lot in the sense that here's this organization that's been powerful in Washington for a long time. And why hasn't it gotten scrutiny? Why, why do I notice it? I'm not, you know, at the time, I'm not an investigative journalist. Why do I notice it? And I, I, should, I really want to be clear. I'm not the first person to do so. We see in the series the ter- terrific Pulitzer Prize winning reporter Lisa Getter, who did a huge front page expose on the L.A. Times. And she followed the money and was able to trace the way that the family was acting as a liaison between the Reagan administration and the various death squad leaders in Central America. That should have been a huge story. Nothing really followed up. Some years before that, Time magazine uh, did a sort of a report, and they said, look, uh, I think that, you know, they described it as this is an underground of Christian activists who are working on the government payroll and yet pursuing the sectarian agenda. No follow-up. 1975, Playboy does a big investigation and discovers that the family is acting as an off-the-books bank, giving loans to congressmen, which they don't really have to pay back. It's a long, again, no follow-up. 1960s, New Republic does an investigation. 50s, Washington Post. So I'm not the first one, but why doesn't it take? Why do only sort of a few of us notice this? And I think it is a little bit, I, I mean, I think I'm lucky in the sense that I had, I was raised, I like to say I was raised unreligious in as many churches, temples, and compounds as my mother had friends and we would sort of follow the music and say like you know who's got a good choir who's doing something we just sort of look around I mean sort of a hippie upraising and um, and that made me curious about this and always to ask the question when we look at someone like Mike Pence um, Mike Pence who we know to be a very religious and devout man you don't see enough questioning what is the form of his religiosity Mike Pence who I end my 2010 book saying okay these other guys who fall into sex scandal they're not going to go on to be presidential timber but maybe in 2016 it'll be a little known Indiana congressman named Mike 
Pence, who had been working with the family for some years. Um, and what is the nature? When we say Mike Pence is a devout man and he prays, you have to ask, well, what does he pray for? And what is the nature of the Jesus to whom he prays? Because that word Jesus encompasses so much. The Jesus who is a Navy SEAL is very different than the Jesus who is a lamb. And uh, these are almost different religions. Um, and I think that's, we, we've, been a, we've been troubled because the political press in America really just sort of ignores this. And I think that helped. That's why we were so surprised when Trump swept this evangelical vote. And I'll claim I wasn't surprised because I'd been reporting on the Trump trail. And I said, look, every rally I go to begins with a Christian right uh, preacher. And some of these are the hardest Christian right preachers I've ever heard. I mean, these, this is the hard, hard right. And they'd be speaking to a crowd, mostly of not very devout people, but they loved it. They loved it anyway, in the same way that in Russia, Putin has been able to mobilize the Russian Orthodox Church, even though almost no Russians go to church. But they love the idea of a country with a destiny. Yeah, the, you're absolutely right. This was so bewildering to me because because I was still identifying the religious right with fundamentalists, with uh, fam family values types, with people that would dislike this thrice married casino operator, whatever he is, game show star. I didn't expect it because I was looking for this family values fundamentalism. I didn't know what had become of so-called muscular Christianity. And I certainly didn't know this idea percolating in the churches that seems to have been kind of invented out of whole cloth by the family, which was that there are these kind of Cyrus the Great pagan figures. And uh, I keep bringing him up on this show because I keep needing to understand this more. So maybe you can walk us up to how we get to Donald Trump as some kind of religious icon in spite of the fact that he doesn't read as especially Christian. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, and that goes back to your earlier question about the family not taking strong legislative positions. They don't. And in fact, they say, look, you know, what we do is we bring people together and activity grows out of that, right? So we'll bring together a number of anti-abortion congressmen and they'll take the action. We, we facilitated the meeting. We don't do arms deals. We just, oh, would, uh, here's the foreign dictator and why here's the president of uh, Raytheon. Perhaps you have something to chat mm -hmm. about. I mean, it really is that level kind of thing. And the same way with a sort of, here's how you get to Trump from the rigidity of the Christian right. And here's, I think, one of the big takeaways of the series for me. What we see in the age of Trump is that the theology of the family has finally trickled down from this elite, this avant-garde of fundamentalism to the much broader public. It used to be the, the Christian right warlords. And I remember, you know, I've interviewed a lot of them. And off the record, they would always speak very candidly. They knew that the politicians they were backing were not necessarily really pious and devout guys. They knew about the affairs mm -hmm. and they knew who was gay and everything else. They thought, saw it as a means to the end. But you couldn't sell that in the public. You needed a pious, righteous man, right? You needed to believe that Reagan was just the shiniest person in, in, on the walk, right? And that has changed. You see that theology in the series. You see it. You go from King David to King Cyrus to King Trump. Uh, King David, there's a, there's a little moment in the series where an actor playing David Coe, one of the leaders of the family, the, the heir apparent, the son of the, the leader, uh, comes to the young man and he's trying to explain to us what's good about King David is, you know, he sees this woman Bathsheba, he covets her, her husband's in the way, he arranges to have the husband killed, and then he either seduces or rapes her, depending on your interpretation of scripture. And, um, 
And he says to these young men, you know, what's that about? And he says, to give an example, he says to one of the guys, he says, suppose, I'm quoting here, suppose I hear you rape three little girls. What would I think of you? Mm -hmm. And this young guy, being a human being, says, you would think I'm terrible. And he says, no, I wouldn't. Does anyone know why? And leave it to the Jew in the room to have the answer. I said, because you're chosen. This is this is this bastard idea, bastardized idea of chosenness. And by this time, I knew that the inner circle of the family believed that they are the new chosen, that the Jews have given up their special covenant with God and are no longer the Jews. And that was exactly it. So if you're chosen, it doesn't matter what you do. And that's what it's allowed them to work with, as they put it in their own words, dictators, murderers, and thieves. Um, mm-hmm. They see these as vessels for God. King Cyrus in Scripture is... The Gentile is, is not a is, is not a Jew, but he he frees the Jews from Babylon and he allows them uh, to go back uh, and build the temple. So there was developed in the Christian right, and at first I thought this was separate, developing separate from the family, and now I know that this is actually coming from a guy named Lance Wallnau, who wrote a best-selling book called God's Chaos Candidate, which is Trump, mm-hmm. and it was how yeah. do we explain what Trump is? And he sort of introduced this King Cyrus story into the narrative into saying that what Trump was, he says, Trump is a God-shaped man. That doesn't mean that Trump is godly. It means that Trump is a vessel that God is using. And the fact that he is thrice married and the fact that he is, as he himself proclaims, a pussy grabber, and you know, the worst you can get about him is the more proof that he must be chosen by God because he's in power. And it was Lance Wallnau who, in fact, also, and is an adv- evangelical advisor to Trump, comes up and writes down Coe's parable of the Wolf King and saying that Trump is the Wolf King. The family's been embracing that theology around the world. That that used to be fine for brown people and black people, folks in Asia and South America, the dictators they would support. And the United States, the, demo- the family always had to work within democracy. Comes Trump smashing all our democratic norms, and the Wolf King has come home in this sense. And the theology that begins as something that is a very kind of transactional, very cynical theology becomes um, the beliefs of the masses who are no longer concerned about righteousness or kindness or justice. Is, okay, so there is a, since you and I think both like to, like moments of hope, (laughs) your team didn't manage to get access to, understandably, to some of these small meetings of men who come together to talk about Jesus. So you're not allowed into these meetings, possibly because they're conniving and contriving to do weird things, but maybe just because they're intimate and, you know, men are talking about their whatever, sexuality or their financial sins. But you are allowed into a meeting in Portland that is really extraordinary. And if the part of the film in which actors play you and play the uh, the Brotherhood at Ivanwald, if that part hasn't convinced you why and how a person might get involved with this, the Portland scene almost certainly will. Tell us about that meeting and the very canny thing they did, which was say, yes, you can sit in our, on our meeting, but your producer has to be a member of this meeting, has to disclose his own suffering and sins. And that was 
really fascinating and 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 viewers should really hold on to the last episode because it's it's very strange it turns in ways you don't expect to me it's the centerpiece of the film oh i'm so glad to hear you say that because i think and and i think the credit there really goes to the director jesse moss who's just a, a great a great talent um and a really sort of sensitive nuanced filmmaker when it comes to portraying other people's faith and and you know it was only it's funny because only after he had sort of done that, and then we were sort of looking at that as 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 the final episode that we realized that Jesse and I had sort of separately come to the sort of same structure. And I end both my books actually, The Family in the Sea Street. And it's funny when they get described to me as anti-religious because I say, look, they they both end with people of faith who are alternatives to this kind of authoritarian faith. It's to say, look, there's small everyday people who are really struggling to be with one another in the moment. And it's quite lovely. Um, and and Jesse found that too. The way that came about was he was at the National Prayer Breakfast. And we see mm-hmm. this man, a man named Larry Anderson, who's a black man and a mostly white organization. And he stands up and he challenges one of the current leaders of the family, a guy named Doug Burley, who was their who is their man in Russia, the man who brought Maria Butina, the spy, who is the, mm-hmm. the, the subject of episode the three. NRA redhead yeah. fanatic, who, who, yeah. Yeah, he was the man who sort of brought her to America. And um, uh, and Larry sort of is asking questions about transparency. And, you know, why is this thing, you know, why, why do we have to, why do we have to hide our light under a bushel? And uh, Burley, the leader of the family, doesn't want to answer. And it doesn't matter because... You know, from his perspective, Larry's a nobody. Larry's a retired cop in Portland, Oregon. But Jesse had the wit to sort of follow up and say, can I come and visit you? And that guy, the risk of that filmmaking is that people can see that and say, oh, well, these guys aren't so bad. So I guess this group isn't so bad. And and hopefully people have been paying attention and understand this is sort of a point and a counterpoint that these guys are far from the center of power. They don't have influence over how a thing goes. They've taken some of the appeal, some of what you rightly describe as, wouldn't it be great if we just get together and talk, you know, just mm-hmm. person to person? Um, and they've taken it earnestly. And because they're not involved in the politics of it, that's all it is for them. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's still, I think there's still, there's, you still see the strain of machismo and hierarchy playing out in that, in that prayer group. But you see other oh, things. in the you prayer see, group. Yeah. Well, and you, okay. It's one thing to be forgiven in a Christian context for things like drinking or neglecting your children or the kind of things that people typically confess to, but it's another thing on a wider level to be forgiven for uh, caging kids at the border yeah, or, exactly. you know, this kill the gays thing. But the forgiveness is powerful to everyone, and especially, I think, men in power. Who, well, it's what who happens when really you really need Jesus. to be, t- yeah, yeah. It's the right thing. Forgiveness is really important because it's what happens when you talk about Jesus plus nothing. There's a sermon yeah. from one of the longtime leaders of the family who was chaplain of the Senate, actually Richard Halverson, and um, he had this sermon called "Forgiveness is Forgetting," and he used the exa- he was using these examples from the Philippines, and it was about forgiving Fernand Marcos, who was one of the most brutal dictators. And it says, you know what? We forget. We just forget what you did. And this is Jesus plus nothing because forgiveness and forgetting aren't the same thing. In fact, they're at odds. They're really at odds. But for the family, it's the same. You see in that small prayer group, Larry Anderson isn't forgetting. He's trying to hold on to this thing he struggled with. 
and to remember it so he can be a better person. The family says, forget about it. I've got to say, the, is it Doug Hampton? Doug Hampton? Doug Hampton, yeah. He's a sympathetic figure, okay. I think, in many he, ways. God, is he a sympathetic figure. I mean, come on. He's like, he's he's been um, cuckolded by his best friend. Yeah, um, or his, I don't know who does the cuckolding in these, those, these scenarios. Maybe his wife. But anyone who thinks he's part of some kind of moral system and then suddenly it's like, wait a second here. <laughs> he, like, he actually, the, my boss and best friend in this Christian thing snuck away with my wife to a casino. And there's something in his bewilderment that is so vulnerable and sweet. But it also points to this thing where it's all well and good to celebrate the strong horse, the strong one. But there are other people who are going to be trampled under his feet. And this guy's one of them. Yeah. And he, look, I mean, let's not be confused. He was once one of the strong horses himself. You know, I mean, he yes. was he was a really elite member. Um, I remember I actually went out and talked to him in Las Vegas back in 2009 when I was researching the book. And this is when, when he was under indictment. And, uh, you know, we talked a lot off the record and ultimately couldn't go on the record because he was on indictment. But, you know, he was sort of laying asses, look, this is this is what I can document Um, this is how we did things. I see now that the very seductive thing, I was seduced by power. I love traveling with John, Senator Ensign, and and Doug Coe, and meeting heads of state and having every door open to us. Um, He loved the idea that there was this, you know, he knew it was a secret organization that a number, you know, uh, Senator DeMint, Senator DeMint had a policy um, uh, that uh, open access for the family, you know, is that that they are allowed to attend any meeting he has, anytime, anywhere. He says, I love this. I love this back channel. It made me feel special. I believed I was special. I thought John was special. I was special. And then when John decided he wanted my wife, all these men, and he means men, who I thought were my best friends too, they told me that only John was special and that I had to step aside and essentially Amazing. give yeah. up his family. Yeah. What I don't envy there is that he's still caught in the matrix of the family. He's he's unable quite to clear his head of it. So he needs to, he's sort of, sort of in an uneasy place psychologically. I think he can't fully hate them. That's the saddest part in the interview where he's still clinging yeah. to the idea. He says, well, Doug Coe was a good man, but the rest of them corrupted it. And I know from the reporting Doug Coe dropped him like a hot potato, too. Doug Coe didn't care about him. And so even, and you see this actually, you know, in the, in, in the Trumposphere, right? You see these guys who break away and they still, I still believe in Trump, but something went wrong. Jeff Sessions, member of the family. Dan Coates, member of the family, who break away and they almost become sympathetic figures, even though they have done so much to advance that kind of authoritarianism. And... But when they reached their moral breaking point, they said, I can't go any further. They were stunned to see that this was never about uh, a moral idea, right or left. It was about power, and the power is going to go on without yes. them. Yes. What I hope from that is that Trump has made this – he's he's not stealth. He's not Doug Coe. And in plain view, he brings on these – tough guys and then betrays them like Rex Tillerson or Jeff Sessions. They've like really one after another, their obituaries are lost. We still don't know what's going to happen to Bill Barr, but they wreck their legacies. And I don't think that you have this many um, men who, uh, you know, 
once had some dignity and often important offices kind of flattened like this and left for dead without there being a kind of crucial blowback or at least reckoning with this um, kind of overman culture. Oh, I hope so. I, I, I think history tells a different tale, unfortunately. Um, someone willing to say Hey, I thought like we that. were supposed to end on a oh. hopeful note. The hopeful note, right. Um, the hopeful yes. note. I mean, there is, look, there's also the hopeful scene in the family. And I would end it like this because people, lots of people writing and saying, well, what do I do? What do I do? I'm like, oh, I don't know. <laughs> I've done what I could do by bringing it to light. But you do see, and uh, director Jesse Moss uh, went to Romania where um, a family member, Congressman Bob Adderholt, and again, the family says we don't get involved in legislation. They were paying for his travel to go to Romania to promote an anti-LGBTQ uh, bill. Mm-hmm. And Jesse followed the people who were trying to fight back, and they organized. In Romania, which is a very conservative country, they defeated the initiative. The hope is the hope that's always been there. The hope is democracy. We don't have to invent something new or find a new path. Sunlight and democracy. Mm. Don't lose faith in that. Mm-hmm. That's what they're trying to make us do. And hold on to that and we'll be okay. Yeah, you're, I'm sold. I've seen the light. I'm going yes. to come into fellowship with you on liberal democracy. Yes. Thank you so Thank much you, for being here, Jeff. Thanks, Virginia. Jeff Charlotte is an associate professor of English at Dartmouth College. He is a journalist, a recipient of the National Magazine Award for reporting. And his book, The Family, is the subject of a new documentary series out right now on Netflix. That's it for today's show. What'd you think? Open your heart to us on Twitter. I'm at page 88. The show is at Real Trumpcast. And and your next obligation is to head over to Slate Plus and become a member. Today is the day. If you're not a Slate Plus member, you're missing out on all sorts of perks, including ad-free and bonus episodes, discounts to our live show, and bragging rights to your friends when you let them know you're supporting our work at Trumpcast and at Slate. Go to slate.com slash Trumpcast plus. Our show today was produced by Melissa Kaplan with help from Ethan Brooks. I'm Virginia Heffernan. Thanks for listening to Trumpcast. Trumpcast.